Well, it is good to be back with you, Timberlake. Before we open the scriptures, I'll just give you a brief update about ministry. Uh, I recognize as I walk around that I see many new faces, so I won't make assumptions that you know who we are uh, and just explain the basics. So my wife, Emily, and I uh, have been missionaries in Malawi, Africa for the past two years. Uh, We went there to serve a church, and I taught in a seminary there. Um, And also, we worked with some of the Malawians who we had brought alongside us on faculty at the seminary. Uh, with the goal that they would take on an ever-increasing load of the teaching and the training, with the goal that eventually it would all be handed over to them. And so I worked with them in that process. Uh, So we were sent from this church for a very specific task, to teach some specific courses there at the school. Um, They had some specific course that needed to be taught, and they thought they had the faculty for that, but then they realized in the course of it that they didn't have the people they needed. So we went there to... to, uh, teach those courses for them. Um, And during those past two years, with an extended break due to COVID, uh, I did teach those classes, and we just recently graduated all of those students, and the pictures you see on the screen are just some pictures from that graduation. Um, And with that work completed, we're now back here. Uh, We plan to be here for at least the next several months, uh, worshiping with you while we consider what's next and where we'll be serving, how we'll be serving, whether in pastoral ministry in the U.S. or going back to the mission field or something else altogether. Uh, But particularly to you as Timberlake, I just want to say that this church is an outstanding sending church for a missionary. Uh, You guys have consistently encouraged us with the communication you send to us. Um, In that communication, often letting us know how you're praying for us and praying for the ministry which is a huge encouragement, and certainly the um, very generous financial support of this church uh, for us while we were doing that. So thank you all. We really appreciate you. We'll take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. During these last two years of working in Malawi, there was a particular missionary I got to know very well. And as I got to know him and spent a good bit of time with him, there was something about him that stuck out to me as being uh, particularly exemplary. By that I mean uh, it functioned as an example of what we as followers of Christ ought to be doing. And in that way, it was convicting to me um, and prodded me on to grow in this area. This man was not content to think about the word of God and its application to life in high-altitude, broad generalities. Rather, when he came to particular issues, whether that was um, things he was sharing from his life or patterns he was observing and pointing out in my life, he would go to specific texts of Scripture. He would then unpack those passages with very helpful clarity, and then he would apply them directly and insightfully to the issue at hand. And in this way, he's just a compelling example of what we all ought to be seeking to grow in, not as some kind of marks of a super-Christian, but of what is really at the core of just faithful discipleship. Pursuing a growing clarity of the Word of God is the first thing that's required there, and secondly, being intentional to bring all of our thoughts and all of our actions under the scrutiny of that and then also into conformity with the Word of God and that growing clarity. 
So Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 is a very familiar passage, a rich passage, and a passage that will help us to grow in these qualities modeled by that missionary. So I trust you've made your way by now to Proverbs 3. The verses we'll be focusing on are verses 5 and 6, but these are situated in a context that the section basically runs from verse 1 through verse 12. And this section consists of six two-verse units. And so we, for that reason, should be reading five and six together. Uh, So basically it would just be one and two go together, three and four go together, five and six go together, uh, seven and eight go together, nine and ten go together, and eleven and twelve go together. Um, Furthermore, not only does that group encourage us to read them together, but throughout these twelve verses, there are commands in each section, and there's always a motivation accompanying the command within each of these two verse units. But verse 5 doesn't have its own motivation. It's found at the end of verse 6. So those are just some reasons why I think we must read these two verses together and allow them together to be understood. So when we do read these two verses together, what do we find? It's a familiar passage, but how do we summarize it? What's being conveyed here? What's the message communicated? So I'll give you the full statement up front, and then we'll unpack it as we go. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, calls us to trust the Lord, calls us to trust the Lord with two complementary means. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, calls us to trust the Lord with two complementary means. And those two complementary means are not two different ways of trusting the Lord, but two different ways that we're called to do that. First of all, trust in the Lord is mandated Trust in the Lord is mandated, and we find that in verse 5, in the first half of verse 6. So 5 to 6a. First, trust in the Lord is mandated, and secondly, trust in the Lord is motivated. Trust in the Lord is motivated, and we find that in the second half of verse 6. So starting with the mandate in verse 5 and the first half of verse 6, we see that essentially this general call to trust the Lord is given to us in basically three different ways. It's stated in three different ways. Starting with the first one in 5a, we read, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does it mean to trust the Lord in this context? It might seem silly to ask, right? It seems obvious enough. But of course, we don't want to just ask, what does trust the Lord mean generically, apart from a context? because it could mean a variety of things, but specifically, what does the author mean these words, what does he intend these words to mean in this context? Well, trusting here could mean something like to feel secure, to be at peace as opposed to being anxious. This is often what we would mean when we might encourage someone, particularly if someone's going through a hard time, if we encourage them to trust the Lord. Essentially, we're saying God is in control, therefore, You should rest in him. You don't need to be anxious. However, in this context, it seems to mean something like to commit to something as being the most likely to give the desired outcome. To commit to something as being the most likely to give the desired outcome. And this often often involves um, a course of action. So just think of someone sitting at a desk 
and considering um, possible alternative strategies. When he makes the decision, he's trusting that that's the best one. And he's also going to be um, committing himself to pursue a course of action, like implementing that strategy. So he decides this is the best one. He's committing to it as being the most likely. He's entrusting himself to that path and then pursuing it. Let me just give you two other examples of what this looks like to help you get your mind around that concept. To trust witness A over witness B is to decide that witness A is more likely to lead me to the truth. And this will involve a course of action, like giving attention, carefully listening to witness A's testimony. Or for a general to decide that he's going to trust his cavalry rather than his infantry for a particular task is to decide that the cavalry is more likely to achieve victory, to accomplish the particular task. And the general will pursue a course of action along with that. And we can see that this is what the author intends here when he calls us to trust the Lord with all our heart by looking at the second half of verse 5. We aren't moving there quite yet, but it will illuminate the meaning of the first half. There, after being told positively to trust the Lord with all our heart, we're told sort of the negative, the opposite of that. Do not lean on your own understanding. So that would be the opposite of trusting the Lord with all your heart. So notice the opposite of trusting the Lord is not being anxious but it's trusting in some alternative to the Lord, namely your own understanding. So what we see there is that the issue in this verse is not being at peace versus being anxious, but choosing between sources of instruction or sources of guidance to which to commit ourselves. Repeat that one more time, because that's crucial to understand what's going on here with this command to trust in the Lord with all your heart. The issue is not being at peace versus being anxious, but choosing between sources of instruction or sources of guidance to which to commit ourselves. To make this even easier to latch on to, make it more tangible, when you read trust in the Lord as a source of instruction and guidance, you should be hearing essentially trust his word because it's in his word that he's communicated to us. So essentially, this verse is dealing with the choice between witnesses to the truth, between advisors or counselors, we might say. So trust in the Lord means to commit ourselves to the instruction provided to us in the Word of God. Now, even though phrasing it that way, going from trusting the Lord to focusing on the communication he's given to us in his Word, is helpful in making it tangible and practical, that way of restating it does lose something compared to what the author says. The author focuses on the person behind the instruction, God himself. Trust the Lord, not necessarily trust his word, though I think that's practically what's in mind. And that's important because the way he's worded it guards us from beginning to think about the word of God as some um, impersonal code of conduct rather than the communication from an all-wise creator. It's not the scriptures that have any kinds of, kind of intrinsic value. The Lord is the one who has intrinsic value, and the high value of the scriptures is that they are his communication to us. You might think of a man who is apart from his wife for an extended period of time and receives a letter from her. 
You might value that letter highly, not because the paper or the ink or anything like that, the letter itself is necessarily valuable, but at this time, that's the expression of her available to him. So he cherishes it, but again, ultimately, he's looking beyond the letter itself to the person who's communicating through that letter. And then we notice that the author doesn't just say, trust in the Lord, but gives this phrase, with all your heart. So in this way, he's telling us that this commitment needs to be an entire commitment. The emphasis here is not on the location that you're trusting with your heart, because with the way the scriptures use the word heart, you would always do trusting with your heart. The heart's kind of the, the immaterial part of man. It's the mission control center, you could say. It's where man reasons through options, makes rational decisions. It's where he um, uses his will to, to choose things. So that's certainly where this trusting would be happening. The emphasis is on the all. Trust the Lord with all your heart. We are to be undivided in our commitment to the instruction communicated to us by the Lord in his word. So the first means the author uses to call us to trust the Lord is by mandating it, and he does this with three statements, the first of which we've seen in 5a, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then in the second half, he really continues with that same same thrust, the same instruction there, but this time by looking at the opposite side, by forbidding that we would trust in alternatives. So the author has told us that this trust in the Lord must be entire in that it's with all our heart. And now, in the second half of verse 5, he tells us that it must be exclusive. It's to be in the Lord, as manifested in his word, not anywhere else. And he chooses to focus on what's probably the most tempting alternative source of our, for guidance, our own understanding. Understanding here refers to something like one's faculty for reasoning through alternatives and choosing the best one, essentially a rational capacity. It's interesting here that understanding is put in a negative light, isn't it? And if you've spent much time studying the Proverbs, you know that generally understanding is a positive thing, something we're told to go after. Proverbs 1-2 says that the book of Proverbs was written so that we might know wisdom and instruction and understand, the same word, words of insight. Or Proverbs 2-3, the father instructs his son to call out for insight and raise his voice for understanding. Or Proverbs 4-5, the author gives the command to get wisdom and get understanding. So here, The way that he refers not just to understanding generally, but your own understanding is crucial. Nowhere else in Proverbs does that phrase occur, your own understanding. But here, it's put in a negative light because it's not this understanding that comes from the Lord that's aided by his instruction, but it's something that comes from within, unaided and uninformed by the word of God. Now, this category of our own understanding is really a very broad category. Let's not misunderstand the extent of this by thinking of it too narrowly. Whenever you maintain some sort of critical distance from sources of information, insisting that you won't blindly follow any of them, but that you will uh, listen to them and then scrutinize each bit of information you hear from them, you know, critically scrutinizing it before you decide what's true, you're in some sense leaning on your own understanding before you think that I 
broadly mean to condemn that altogether. Hold on. I just want you to get this category in your mind. You might think of it in terms of two broad alternatives. One would be to pick a particular source of truth and just decide that's a reliable source of truth. And once you've made that decision, any information that comes from you from that source, well, you can just accept it because you've already decided the source is reliable. The other way is to say, I'm going to get my information from multiple sources, and I'm going to critically scrutinize every bit of it. I'm not going to assume that any of it's right. I'm not really going to entrust myself to any particular source. In many ways, <laughs> this latter one is the hallmark of sort of modernist enlightenment thinking. It's something that you probably hear and immediately think, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we should be doing. Now, when it comes to sources other than the Word of God, sources that don't have the claim to authority and accuracy that the Lord has, that second option of maintaining a critical distance is probably appropriate. But this proverb is teaching that such a stance is not appropriate before the Word of God. We can summarize verse 5 simply in this way. It's contrasting two ways of responding to the Word of God. The first half presents to us the option of committing ourselves to the Word of God. Committing ourselves in the sense of diligently seeking to know what God has revealed, and wherever he's spoken to an issue, it's the final word. The second presents and forbids the option of trusting our own understanding. It might sound, in practice, something like this. Yes, I recognize that is what the Bible teaches, but if I do that, I'll likely lose my job, and surely God wants me to feed my family, right? So I'm going to choose another course. In other words, the Word of God is subservient to my own understanding. Of course, I'll trust the Lord when it makes sense to me. Those alternatives are essentially what this verse is addressing, and it's clearly instructing us to commit ourselves to the Word of God for truth and for guidance, and it's clearly forbidding that we would make Scripture subject to our own evaluation. Now, we're going to come back and think a bit more about what this looks like in practice, but continue on to verse 6a, where we see the third statement, which together are all mandating this trust in the Lord, it says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, or know him. To know the Lord here, in this context, means to know the character of the Lord, to know the requirements of the Lord, and to act accordingly. To know the character of the Lord, to know the requirements of the Lord, and to act accordingly. We might translate it with the word regard, in all your ways, regard the Lord. That is, to look to him with concern for what he thinks. In all our ways, that is, in all of life, in everything we do, we are doing it with an eye to the Lord. What is the character of the Lord? What has he instructed us? How has he instructed us? What has he required of us? And to have a disposition that is eager to act accordingly. Thus, although this part of verse 6 uses different language than what we've seen in verse 5, it's essentially the same. It's mandating trust in the Lord, calling us to commit ourselves to the Lord as he's revealed himself in his word. So having seen those three different ways of communicating the same thing, let's step back and just think about 
What does it look like in practice? And first of all, why do we struggle with leaning on our own understanding? Why do we find that so tempting? I think there are kind of two sides to the answer. First, we misjudge ourselves. And secondly, we misjudge God. So let's first take number one. We misjudge ourselves and consider that. Essentially, I just mean we overestimate our own reasoning capacity. Look at the very next verse in chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's the problem. That's, that's the way in which we're overestimating ourselves. We're misjudging ourselves. We are wise in our own eyes. And when we are wise in our own eyes, we will find the temptation to trust, or sorry, to lean on our own understanding to be an irresistible temptation. Why would I not? Why would I trust anyone but myself? Look how wise I am. You've probably all heard the saying, you don't know what you don't know. Essentially, it just means you can't be aware of kind of whole domains of knowledge about which you're ignorant precisely because you don't know anything about them. For us as individuals, the boundaries of available knowledge only extend as far as what we know. Whatever you know, that's the boundary of available knowledge. You, you aren't aware there's anything else, because if you were, you would know that info. Therefore, as far as we are aware, at any given time, we know all there is to know. And this makes us dangerously inclined to be wise in our own eyes. Often, confidence in one's own rightness is directly proportional to one's ignorance. The more confident someone is, the more ignorant they probably are. And the more someone knows, the more modest and tentative they often are. In fact, it's basically proverbial that those who are most headstrong are often young and ignorant. And that the more wise and understanding someone is, the more humble and tentative and careful they are to hear correction, being open to the possibility they might misunderstand something. Now, a little caveat here. I suspect some of you might be feeling a bit uneasy, saying, what does this do to Christian conviction? How can we have convictions if, if this is really a right estimation of our, of our own ability to understand? And to that I would say, yeah, it does undermine the ability to have convictions if those convictions are based on our own understanding. But it is a very different matter when we are dealing with an issue to which God has clearly spoken in his word. And in that case, we aren't leaning on our own understanding, but we are trusting the Lord. So, while we ought to have firm convictions where the word of God is clear, it's appropriate for us to be more tentative on issues the word of God does not address. So, first of all, why is it that we find ourselves so tempted to lean on our own understanding. And I say, number one, it's because we misjudge ourselves. We overestimate our own knowledge, our own understanding. And secondly, really the same point, but the other side of the coin, we misjudge God. You've probably heard it said that unless you know everything, you can't know anything. Unless you know everything, you can't know anything. And there's a good measure of truth to that. Everything is situated in a context, and context is determinative for the meaning of the details. 
Therefore, insofar as there are always more realms of context of which we are unaware, it's, it's difficult for us to be sure we've ever understood any of the details rightly. But there is someone who is omniscient. There is no realm of context of which he is unaware, and therefore he understands every detail perfectly. Now that, that way of stating it is entirely true, but it doesn't go quite far enough because it seems to present God as or suggest that God is some kind of passive knower, a passive observer. But God is more than a passive observer of all that is. He actively designed and created all. He is the architect behind all. And not only did he actively design and create all in the past, but he continues into the present to be providentially over all. Now, when we realize this finitude of human knowledge, and maybe it would be more meaningful to speak of the vastness of human ignorance, the fact that the all-knowing God has spoken into our world is utterly momentous. It is revolutionary. Suddenly, any objection about the folly of blindly trusting the Bible is seen itself to be the height of folly. To say, wow, we know so little and our capacity to arrive at certainty is so minimal, but we insist upon limiting ourselves to that and refuse to hear the revelation of the one who created all. But brothers and sisters, let's be honest. We often feel a bit sheepish in the face of such criticisms that we're blindly trusting the Bible. And the reason is because we've already drifted a long way from a right estimation of our own ignorance, a right estimation of God's knowledge, and the revolutionary reality that the all-knowing creator has spoken to us. I began this point of implication by asking why we find it so tempting to trust our own reasoning over the word of God. And we've seen that the reason is we misjudge ourselves and we misjudge God. Therefore, if we are to rightly judge ourselves and rightly judge God, and thereby avoid being wise in our own eyes, and thereby avoid leaning on our own understanding rather than trusting the Lord, we must, on the one hand, cultivate and nurture a self-skepticism. We must cultivate and nurture a self-skepticism, a skepticism regarding our own understanding. That's healthy and appropriate considering our own limitedness. And secondly, correlating to that, we must cultivate and nurture a high view of God and correspondingly a high view of his word. He is the one who knows all, high view of him, and he has spoken to us in his word, a high view of his word. So building on that, that leads us to a second implication, the high view of God's word. If we refuse to follow our own understanding and rather uh, trust in the Lord by committing uh, to the teaching and instruction he's provided in his word, then it follows that we need to be a people characterized by fervent pursuit of knowing that revelation. And we can press into that, challenge ourselves in that from several angles. 
for one thing, we are tempted, we are prone to be content with what we currently know. Surely, you know, I've read the Bible almost daily for a long time. I think I understand the many stories from the Bible. I've got a pretty good familiarity with the Bible. And to be content with that rather than what we ought to be doing, which is ever pressing on toward greater clarity of understanding. And even when we think we've heard what the Bible says on a particular issue in the past, we need to be ever eager to go back and to, especially when it's challenged or when the issue comes up again, and say it's so important that we hear what God has said on this, that we understand it rightly and as clearly as possible, that I'm going to go back and reconsider it, to look at it again, and just ask, am I understanding this as clearly as I can from God's perspective? So don't be content with a superficial understanding of his word. Also, don't be content that at one point you had a good grasp of his word and then decide it's time to coast and to just depend upon that past understanding. And that's something that's particularly needed for those of you who have been in the faith for a longer time or those of you who are older in age and have have been around studying your Bible for a long period of time. I can't empathize with that, but I can sympathize how easy it would be to begin to think that way, to begin to coast because of how much you already know of God's Word. In a a collection of rabbinic commentary, commentary by rabbis on some passages, which they call a midrash, the rabbis recount the story of a man who went for some time into a place where there was no synagogue. And keep in mind that before the printing press, if you wanted to have the scriptures with you, you had to have a lot of money to have your own copy made. And furthermore, nothing, it wasn't bound in a codex like this. It would have been 22 scrolls you would have to carry around with you. So unless there's a synagogue where you're going as a Jew in the ancient world, you, you go there with no scriptures. You have no access what, except for what you have memorized in your mind. And so he went off content that I know there's no synagogue there, but I already know the, know the scriptures pretty well. And the story that the rabbis recount tells how he slowly grew duller and duller in his understanding of the scriptures, and slowly that began to become evident even in his life. And so the rabbis build on this, and they kind of appeal to this verse. Do not be wise in your own, I'm sorry, um, do not lean on your own understanding. And they draw out from that. Don't ever be content with what you currently understand of the scriptures, and don't ever go anywhere where there is no access to the word. I think that's helpful for us. Don't be content with what you already understand. Be continuing to press in to better understand the Word of God. Because your memory, your understanding, that clarity, however good it is currently, is going to fade with time. And as it fades, so will your temptation to lean on your own understanding increase. So how do we do this? How do we prioritize growing in an ever-increasing clarity in our understanding of God's Word, of His revelation to us. There's nothing special. You guys have all heard these things, but it doesn't necessarily require any formal program of study. It doesn't mean going to Bible college or going to seminary or enrolling in some online courses. It essentially just means persistent, faithful, intentional Bible reading. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. You just need to Be a diligent student of your English Bible. Secondly, take full advantage of all of the opportunities 
for being instructed in the scriptures here in your local church. Just before this service, there were Sunday school classes where you could go and be taught the scriptures. This evening, there'll be more teaching. Throughout the week, there are all kinds of other things. There's plenty of opportunities, so take advantage of those. So we must pursue an ever-growing understanding of and clarity into the Word of God. But going a step further, that focuses kind of purely at the cognitive level, our, our understanding, our knowledge. But we must be diligent to apply that clarity to the transformation of every nook and cranny of our thinking and of our actions. And while that's something that we like to do on our own, we often, I think, prefer to do on our own because it's not fun having friends look into our own lives and help us to apply the scriptures. And we should do it on our own, but wow, fellowship can be such a helpful venue for applying the scriptures to our lives. You, you can hear one another saying how they've been hearing the truth and applying it to their lives, and it stimulates your own thinking say, oh, have I been thinking about the application of that truth to my life in that way, or has that been sort of a dark corner of my heart I haven't even noticed uh, is a problem that needs to be swept up and dealt with? And then likewise, you're sharing how God's working in you in applying Scripture to your life, and that the Lord uses that to stir up their own thinking and to convict them in various ways. So verses 5 through 6a have called us to trust in the Lord by mandating that trust, by commanding that trust. And the author finishes by now moving from this mandate, this command, to motivating us to that. So now we move to the second point, the second means he uses to call us to trust the Lord, and that is trust in the Lord is motivated in the second half of verse 6. And here where we read, and he will make your paths straight, essentially he's telling us what's the result for those who do trust the Lord, refuse to lean on their own understanding, seek to know the Lord in all their ways, and the author tells us the result is that the Lord will make their paths straight. That is, when we follow God's wisdom rather than our own, our life will in general, be smoother. Our life will, in general, be smoother. Now, some of you might be hearing that and thinking, wow, this sounds like some kind of prosperity gospel. Uh, what about all that Scripture teaches about uh, hardship and persecution for Christians? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? What about this making your path straight and smooth? That doesn't sound like the Christian life. Well, Here's just a few thoughts on how we reconcile those things. First of all, and this is what this text is emphasizing, there is always a sense in which following God's instructions in God's world works. And works in a way that defying God's instructions in his world doesn't work. Does that make sense? That's, that's essentially what's, what the Proverbs get at when they hold out these um, motivations for us to walk in wisdom. When you walk in wisdom, generally things go better. But, of course, that's generally. That's what the text is affirming, and even though I'm going to go on and kind of help you to think through the caveats of what else Scripture says, we can't lose sight of that because that's the motivation Scripture's giving us to compel us onward. And to the extent that we allow other Scriptures 
to kind of muffle this motivation, to that extent we miss out on a God-given help to walk in this. But this side of the consummation of the kingdom, even the righteous feel the effects of the fall, not only the wicked. Consider, for example, even Jesus being perfectly righteous, certainly shared in the effects of living in a fallen world. And there are at least two reasons why the righteous also experience the effects of the fall. For one thing, the fall hasn't merely affected our wills, meaning we don't merely choose to sin, but it affects us in all kinds of different ways. After all, what was one of the first things that happened? Death entered the world. It affects our physiologies, our our physical frame. Consider, for example, a baby born blind. That had nothing to do with that baby's righteousness or wickedness. It's It's related to sin in the sense that it's a product of the fall, but not to individual sin or wickedness. Or a child develops autism, our bodies age and fall apart, our minds grow dull. For anyone who experiences any of these, those things don't necessarily seem like a smooth road. It seems a little bumpy. But yet, it may be totally unrelated to, to, to wickedness or to righteousness. And, and furthermore, the effects of sin often reach, even when it's related to someone's choice to sin, often reach far beyond the one who commits those sins. Consider, for example, murder. Someone chooses to commit a sin, and yet that's felt by others in a very serious way. That person murdered certainly does not perceive in that moment their path to be straight. Or abuse. A wife who suffers because of her husband's foolish financial decisions. And the Old Testament itself is very quick to recognize these realities. There's a whole book devoted to it, the book of Job, about a righteous man who feels the effects of the fall and that doesn't do anything to question his own righteousness. Psalm 73 would be another such text in the Old Testament. But the difficulty goes a step further because not only do the righteous suffer in spite of their righteousness, that is, not because of their righteousness, but it's also true that sometimes the righteous will suffer uniquely because of their righteousness. And that itself isn't only a New Testament reality. We've been in the book of Daniel, and think about Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's friends are thrown into the fiery furnace precisely because of the righteous stand they took. Or Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel himself is thrown into the lion's den precisely because of the righteous stand he took. And this is even more emphatically conveyed in the New Testament. We don't have to go very far beyond a very familiar passage, 2 Timothy 3.11, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So yes, it is significantly true that God blesses in tangible ways the paths of those who trust him. God blesses significantly in tangible ways the path of those who trust him. And yet, we live in a fallen world in which even the righteous don't escape the effects of that fall. We live in a rebellious world, a world that's in rebellion against God and likes to particularly target uh, those who are righteous and do obey God. 
But from a bird's eye view, if we zoom out and look at the whole, see the big picture, God blesses the way of those who trust him rather than leaning on their own understanding. And that should motivate us. So what a sweet text, in many ways so simple, and yet when you begin unpacking it, so much there, so rich, calling us to trust the Lord with two complementary means. First, it mandates that we trust the Lord, and then it comes around and motivates us to do that. And if we're to live according to this truth, we must have a right view of our own understanding our own reasoning capacity. It's weak. It's severely limited. And along those lines, we must cultivate and nurture an appropriate self-skepticism, a skepticism regarding our own understanding. And we must also have a right view of God's knowledge. God's knowledge is exhaustive in its scope. It's perfect in its accuracy. And furthermore, Our Lord not only knows all, but he's the architect of all. Therefore, who could be better situated to to give instruction for life in his creation? So we must cultivate that high view of God and correspondingly a high view of his word. As a part of that, we need to pursue seeing that value to the word of God. We need to be pursuing clarity to understanding this. In many ways, we think about vast libraries that humans have accumulated. This is really a little book. <laughs> it's not, not much there. And yet, how, how little time we spend and how little we do mastering it. So may we press in to seek to always becoming clear in our understanding of it. And then, pressing in to apply that to every last bit of our lives. Not just the most obvious areas in our actions, but beginning with the renewal of our minds as we're bringing every thought captive, bringing it under the scrutiny of Scripture, bringing it into line with everything that God has revealed in His Word so that we think His thoughts after Him and then being transformed from the inside out, seeing that come out and be evident in our actions. Let's pray. Lord, reminded that there's so much here and the implications are so wide. We could, so much of the Christian life is subsumed under these instructions you've given us. And Lord, so I, I pray even as I'm aware that there's so little time to be able to apply it to all the domains in which it could be applied, I pray that you would take the truth we've seen here in the understanding of these texts And that you would work through that by your spirit to apply these to our own lives wherever we need to hear them. Maybe maybe we're those who, yes, we revere the word of God highly, but when it comes to interpreting the word, we're quick to say, surely it doesn't mean that because that doesn't make sense to me. And to replace it with a different meaning, Lord. Find those ways in our hearts. Search those out by your spirit and expose those that we might see how it is that we need to bring our lives into greater conformity with this truth, that we need to be trusting in you with all our heart, leaning not on our own understanding. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would motivate us, even as we see in our own lives and those around us, the blessing that comes from simply walking as you've instructed us to walk, 
Um, and may that compel us on to continue in that course. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.